Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Today we'll be reading from Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. If you, oh, which is on page 27 in the blue Bibles behind your seat back. If you do not have a Bible of your own, uh, please feel free to take one of these as a gift from us here at Northridge Life. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your father has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Thus says God's word. Generally, when I when the sermon text is read, I just come up here and pray about the sermon. But I just want to direct your attention to a couple of uh, things. I found out today from Angie that um, Bill and Kristen got home, and Bill had to immediately go to the uh, emergency room for some some things that that uh, just weren't. Uh, going right, and so we want to lift them up. Also, we want to lift up Lana Nehi, who's, who uh, is recovering at home now, but she was in the hospital earlier this week. And, and so will you join me as we pray for the message and as we pray for these two uh, beloved members of our, of our community here. Father, we just thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, for the goodness you've shown Bill and Kristen and the kids so far, Lord. We know that your hand has been working mightily in their lives. And so, God, I just ask that you would... Um, um, just do a miracle, God, and, and just bring relief, immediate relief to Bill. I pray that his recovery would still um, go uh, just without a hitch, Lord, and that you would just let them, uh, God, experience mercy in the form of healing uh, in abundance, God. And so I thank you for that. I pray that our church would rise up and show them love and service like we already have. And we'll, and God, help us to have the energy and, and, and uh, just thoughtfulness to continue that. And Lord, just um, move quickly on their behalf. Lord, I pray for those in their household who are sick. I know some of them have the flu. And so, Lord, I pray that you would touch that as well. That can only complicate these things. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just give them quick recovery as well. And I pray that even as they're at home right now, maybe even listening to this, Lord, that they would be uh, made well and that they would be encouraged in their body and in their faith. Lord, I thank you for just the quick recovery that you gave Lana. I pray that you would just give her plenty of rest right now as she's at home. I pray that you would just encourage her heart, Lord, and and um, God, just bless her family for the way they took care of her. And uh, Lord, just uh, bring her and Bill and Kristen back to us quickly, Lord. And we just we thank you for all of them and being a part of our family. Lord, we don't want to neglect to pray for this message. God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. Uh, the words of the living God, and that we would have hearts to receive it, and that we would, our understanding of who you are would be expanded to a higher plane, Lord God, a higher reality, God, than maybe we've considered before. Perhaps we have made you too small in our own minds. And 
So God help us with that. God help me to communicate mysteries that are far too high and far too wonderful for me. Lord, I pray that I would be faithful to your word and communicate them accurately. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. Um, So last week we began a new series on the attributes of God. And you may recall that we learned that an attribute speaks not of something that uh, is a part of God. It's not one of his parts. It's not something that, that altogether makes up the sum of who God is. But rather, when we think of attributes, we're thinking of something that is true about God, something that cannot be otherwise. Um, in fact, you know, when we talk about like what Gabriel was talking about, God being love, which the Bible tells that. First John says, God is love. But when we read that, God is love, we don't take that to mean simply that God has the ability to love. Because guess what? If that's all it takes to be God, then all of you are God, right? Because you have the ability to love. There's probably people in this room right now that you love. I hope at least a few. So... Um, but but what it means is not that God has the mere ability to love, but it means that by His excellencies, by His perfection, that God is the only reliable definition for us of what love is. And that's that's important because that's true of every single attribute we'll talk about <coughs> over the next few months. It's true of his holiness. It's true of his omnipotence. God is perfectly all of his attributes all the time. As we said last week, he doesn't diminish one to exercise another. He's not, you know, growing in them. He is always perfectly his attributes. Now this doctrine has a name. You might not be surprised to hear. It's called the simplicity of God. And when I first heard the, the term the simplicity of God, I didn't like it. Because I think of things that are simple, I I, I confuse those with things that are simplistic. And that's not what we're saying about God at all. There's nothing more, in one sense, complex, more uh, manifold, glorious than God. Uh, So it doesn't mean that he's simplistic like some machine or some mechanism that we can figure out with just enough observation. But it means what it means is that he's unmixed in his being, that unlike us who are ever-changing, think about it, you're, you're a, a, an ever-changing combination of physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual characteristics and qualities. How many of you emotionally this week alone, we're, we're taking a seven-day snapshot, have been just like this? Completely immutable and unchangeable. Raise your hand if that applies to you. Come on, go ahead, don't be shy. <laughs> I had one, but the... Uh, 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 it, so... We change in every single way. Our physical bodies change, our mental states change, our emotional states change, our spiritual characteristics change. But the simplicity of God is, is firm, it's established, he's always the same. And this becomes clearer when, we, when in a few weeks we're going to look at it, one of his characteristics, his immutability or his unchangeableness. What God is now, he has always been and he will always be. Nothing can add to him. And nothing can diminish him in any way. His essence can't be divided and his purity can't be tarnished. This is the simplicity of God. With God, what you see is what you get. He is who he is. 
And because of this, anything to be found that's good, anything that you've ever experienced and you said that is good in the created realms, whether in nature, in humans, in angels, anything, or even in the glorious domain in which angels dwell, nothing of of the goodness of those things springs from itself. Nothing does. But it derives from God's perfect simplicity. In other words, it's the fruit of what God is when we see goodness in this world. Let me give you a couple of examples. When you are out in, in, you know, uh, out in the boonies and you look up and you see the vast, you know, sea of stars above you. You see this gorgeous starry night and it literally takes your breath away. It's because the reason it takes your breath away is because you see the magnitude of God in it. Now you may not even recognize that. You may think you're just blown away by something that's stunning and beautiful, but what's happening is you are awestruck by your smallness and realize that you're enveloped by something that is so much bigger, so much grander. And so you're deriving a sense of God's magnitude from the goodness of His creation. Everybody following me? When you see nobility or virtue or benevolence or even simple kindness in a fellow human being. You're moved because that person is reflecting in a very small way what God is perfectly. And the image of God that we bear, all of us, longs to be reconciled to that. And that's why we appreciate virtue and nobility and kindness. The attribute that we began with last week was God's incomprehensibility, which is to say that God is so superior to us in every way, so above, so beyond, that we could have absolutely no hope on our own of understanding him, much less knowing him in an intimate relational way, if he didn't take the initiative to reveal himself to us first. And we learned last week that in his amazing grace, thank God, that's exactly what he does. He's revealed himself first in a creation, as I just mentioned, that is visible and accessible to everyone. And also throughout history, he's revealed himself through the redemptive words and deeds that are recorded now as Holy Scripture. But most of all, he's revealed himself perfectly in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We see God in His teachings, His miracles, His authority, His wisdom, His life, His death, His resurrection, and His ascension. Because they paint for us the fullest picture of who God is and what He's like. In fact, Colossians 1.15 tells this about the Son, Jesus the Son. It says, He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. When we want to know what God is like in any of His attributes, or all of His attributes, the greatest representation is in Jesus. And why is that? Because Jesus is God. And yet He dwelt among us and showed us the Father's glory. Jesus said Himself, if you've seen Me, You've seen the Father. He said, I am, the, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. John told us, this was our benediction last week, that we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only one from the Father, the only Son from the Father. And we found Him upon looking upon Him to be full of grace and truth. Now, having dealt 
with the fact that God, left to our own devices, is completely incomprehensible. We're going to spend the next several weeks investigating all that God has revealed to us in the scriptures about himself, as well as looking to Jesus, so that we can see what John described in saying we've seen his glory. And today we're going to begin by considering a much more fundamental question to this discussion. Now that we understand, the first step was to understand we can't understand. Okay, we got that down. Now we're going to say, well, how does the Bible help us understand? And so the question that we are faced with is this. What is God? What is he? Certainly this whole series is meant to answer that question. That's the whole purpose behind this series. But before we can appreciate God's many attributes and all the things that hopefully we'll be able to list out and explain, we need to consider some foundational things that the Bible teaches on the very basic level, not lowest level, because there's nothing about God that isn't highly exalted, magnified, and glorious. But I'm talking about to understand any of his other attributes, you've got to understand these things first. So the first thing... The first basic truth we want to understand is something we've definitely alluded to and that we'll allude to again. In fact, what you're going to notice is as we discuss attributes, if you ever studied the attributes of God, there is going to be a lot of overlap over the next few weeks. That, that Because God is not divisible by parts, when you talk about one attribute of, of who he is, you have to include el- you know uh, allusions to other elements that God is. Or not elements, he's not, I just contradict myself. Did you hear that? Other, other truths about God. So the first thing we want to uh, consider is that God is uncreated. Like I said, we've touched on this already and we're going to dive deeper into this reality, especially when we consider God's eternity and his infinity. God has no beginning and is not captive like we are who are created to the realms of time or space or matter. He is absolutely above and beyond all of that. And the implication of this is that God is entirely unlike anything that you have ever known or ever will know, that you have ever seen or ever will see, that you have ever experienced or ever will experience. God God is far above all that. And A.W. Pink, the great uh, thinker from, from 100 years ago, terms this the solitariness of God. God, what he means by that term, solitariness, is that God is one of a kind. God is irreproducible. He is incomparable. We are bound uh, as creatures to only what we know, what we can observe, or what we can experience. But Moses said about God in Exodus 15 and 11, he said, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? a lot of things in this world that call themselves God, and certainly in a, in a pagan Iron Age environment there were. But he says, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Now, I, I, we're going to do an exercise today. I want everybody to participate. I want you to, first of all, think about all the diversity that God has, has, has intertwined into creation, whether in the human uh, realm and the animal realm, plant realm. Just think about all the diversity that God has created. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to kind of set that aside and I want you to think just for a moment of something completely original. Just come up with anything you can think of. 
any creature, any anything. Just 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 come up with anything that you can that is absolutely totally original, born only in your head. Now you might, if you're like me, you might think of a giant purple snail with a chicken's head and ferns for feet. But if if you do that, if that's the best you could come up with, may I just point out to you that you have done nothing but borrow from God. You borrowed the concept of giant versus small from God. You borrowed the color purple. You borrowed snails, chickens, ferns, and feet. You you borrowed all of that. You cannot think anything that is truly original. Everything that you can think of to try to be creative is only pieced together from elements we already were familiar with in this creation. Everything, the point of this silly exercise is that everything originates from God. He is the only author. He's not only the author, as a matter of fact, but he's the master. He's the overseer of our creativity, of our imaginations. He sets the boundaries of our discoveries and he limits them to the created order. And this is only one example of why we call him solitary. There is none like him, nor could there ever be. Or else, here's the problem, there would be two supremely sovereign beings. But the concept of sovereignty, absolute sovereignty, does not allow for either peers or rivals. You can't be God's peer or his rival if God is absolutely sovereign. Therefore, God's not like Anything or anyone, at least not exactly like anything or anyone. When we consider God's uncreated reality, we also have to consider that while we're corporeal or we're made of matter and material and cells and all of those things, that God is perfectly pure spirit. First, he's uncreated. Second, he's pure spirit. John 4.24, Jesus is speaking speaking to the woman of the well, and he says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is invisible. He has no body or parts, as we've mentioned, and this is why we're forbidden to visualize him, either in formed images by chiseling out some idol or within even the confines of our own mind. This is why it's a very dangerous road to go down when you say things, and I hear people say it all the time, what I imagine God to be like is, fill in the blank. shouldn't do that. You should let the word tell you what God is like. Any form that we attribute to him, even if we're Michelangelo painting the the, the, uh, ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, any image that we attribute to him would be tainted by our creaturely imagination. It would just be tainted. And therefore, whatever is born of my imagination is infinitely beneath the majesty and dignity of God. Let's do do this with me. Everybody look up Deuteronomy chapter 4. Grab your Bibles. We don't have this one on the screen. Look up uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4. And then we'll begin. This is God's instructions to his people on the on the brink of entering the promised land. And let's begin looking at verse 15. And look what God says to his people through Moses. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. 
Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water and under the sea. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heavens, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Now think about that. He says, that way back in verse 15, or verse 16 rather, he says, making a carved image for yourselves. When we, when we say, and you see this on social media all the time, we say, well that's not my God. Um, you know, if, if somebody says something about someone's particular sin and they don't like it, well, my God doesn't, is gracious, my God doesn't judge, things like that. And they start defining by their own sin, by their own fallenness, who their God is. Well, God expressly forbids us here, do not make an image of God for who? Yourselves. Don't do it. And then he goes through the whole list, every kind of category of created thing. He says, don't do this. Now, look again, if you would, at the last part of verse 19. He he describes all the things that they can potentially make objects of worship. And he says this, these are things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole earth. Why is it stupid to say our God is the sun going across the sky like the Egyptians did. Why is that stupid? Because everybody gets the sun. Everybody gets its benefits. Why do you say this is our rain God? Because God says, I send rain on the just and the unjust. God is nothing like anything that we can imagine. And anytime we imagine him to be anything. Now you guys are thinking, well, we don't do those pagan things. But anything you imagine him to be, you're limiting him far beneath his dignity or glory. We must not assign forms to God in any way, mentally or artistically, because they're always corrupting. They're never, ever close to accurate. Okay, moving on. A child will often ask, perhaps your children have asked this, where did God come from? Now, if we if we have you know, settled in our minds that God is eternally existing, an uncreated spirit, and we are confronted with the question, where did God come from? We arrive on the border of the concept of God's aseity. And and the word aseity is a Latin word, and it means fr- uh, from self, basically, is what it means. So we're talking about his self-existence when we talk about God's aseity. Aseity teaches us that God depended on no person at all for his existence. None of us can say that. There's not a single person in this room that can say that. We all had a mother and a father. A sperm and an egg were, were necessary components for our existence. But God exists completely from himself. He had no beginning, therefore he is eternal, he will have no end, therefore he is immortal, and he never changes, therefore he is immutable. And this is the basis of the text that Mike read for us this morning. God, when he's speaking to Moses... Before he sends him to Exodus to confront Pharaoh, he did not, this is so important, he did not reveal a mere trait to Moses when he said, I am that I am. No, he was revealing his name. 
And when you say a person's name, you make an, a mental as- association with what that person is like. If you were talking to me, you're a stranger, maybe you're a guest this morning, and you say, you say, well, what's the deal with Gabriel? I'm, I'm going to have an immediate association. I think Gabriel's a faithful man, hard worker. If you say, what, what's the deal with Jim? I'm going to say, well, Jim is a close friend. He's always uh, encouraging and good for a laugh. And, and you know, the, I would say these things because, because their names reveal something to me about them. And so God's desire, follow with me here, is that we would we would associate him through his name, Yahweh, I am that I am, with his otherliness. He wanted us to look at him and say, he is not like anything else. He is the kind that can only, this this otherliness can only be understood when we begin to consider his self-existence and all that entails. He was separating himself with the name, I am that I am. He's separating himself from the creaturely concocted gods of the Egyptian imagination. He is saying to these people who just are about to leave their bondage in Egypt, surrounded by idols, and he's saying, look guys, I am totally unlike them. They were created, formed by carpenters and silversmiths, perverted versions of created things like cats and dogs, lions and the sun. But he is the internal, uncreated one, derived from and neither dependent on anyone. And therefore he says, I love this, the way that passage that Mike read to us ended. He says, this is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The name of God, Yahweh, I am that I am. And what it communicates us is beautiful. True worshipers are to worship God as the only, the unique, the other, the incomparable. That's how we're to worship God. He said, this is my name. I want it remembered. Every other creature, every other created thing rather, exists because... Angels and heavenly beings were created by God's spoken word, as were all the celestial bodies. They were spoken into existence. Every mineral, every plant, every animal, and all of humankind were created. God is the first cause of all that is. And he has ordained any second causes that he may use to propagate life. Whatever we are... And listen to this. This is going to shock some of you that have way too high opinion of yourself. Whatever we are, we are because of another. Let me say it again. Whatever we are, we are because of another. Whether it's our physical traits inherited from our parents. Maybe it's skills that we've learned from the teaching or experience of others. Nothing Just like our imagination a few moments ago, nothing is original to us. We are, by nature, derivative beings. We are derived from something else. And whatever we have, we have derived from another. Everything. Think about it. Some of you in this room own houses. Some of you have even bought land and built houses. But that property was once someone else. You derived it from someone else. Your income that you're, you're getting right now came from your bosses or your customers. Even our spouses came from our in-laws, whether we appreciate it or not. Everything that we have can be traced back to a source other than ourselves if we look back far enough. 
Why is that important? Because who but God can say they exist because of themselves? Colossians 1.16, Gabriel alluded to it this morning, says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created, listen to this, through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. See, God needed no creator. He is the first and ultimate cause of all that there is. He needed no creator. He needed no teacher. He exists. He has existed and will exist utterly dependent of any creaturely mind, any creaturely hand, any creaturely will, or any creaturely decree. The Bible says that he upholds everything by the word of his power. If he were not, if God was not, nothing would, nothing could, and nothing should be. No child has ever been conceived apart from his will. And that's why the abortion argument is stupid, ungodly, and demonic. Thank you. No flower has ever blossomed. No star has ever risen or fallen. No minute has ever come in God without God's uh, direct involvement. He is their source. And after we ask God how exists, well, he exists within himself, we have to ask why he exists. For what purpose does God exist? And we find part of the answer when we discovered why we exist. Look at this, Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. This is the choir of, of saints around the throne of God in the presence of, of the angels in heaven. And this is the song they sing to God. Pay close attention to the lyrics. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, I think the King James says pleasure, They existed and were created. God exists ultimately. Why does God exist? For what purpose? God exists ultimately for himself and for his glory. He created us and everything else that exists so that that glory may be magnified. The choir singing in Revelation declares that God is worthy of praise and glory because he created all of this by his will and for his pleasure. God created nothing out of his need and has never been dependent on anything or anyone for supply, for affirmation, for approval. But God created to show forth his majesty. And this includes the entirety of the created order and even both the righteous and the unrighteous. Romans 11.36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. And to him be glory forever. Amen. God is supremely zealous for his glory above everything else he's created. And how could it possibly be otherwise? If God is the supreme good in the universe, why should he not promote that which is the most good? Why should he not promote that which is highest? When we make ourselves the supreme good, either individually or as as the human race, it's arrogance of the most repulsive sort. 
Why should created worms like you and I think the cosmos exists for us? And there's a God robed in glory that should receive praise for it. Even when we look in the scriptures in the New Testament to the reason for our own redemption in Christ, we may find to our surprise that our salvation was not an end in itself. In other words, God didn't come up with a plan real quick to redeem a fallen race. That was not the end in itself. But it was accomplished. The end of salvation was accomplished. Why? For his glory. That Christ be glorified above all else. He didn't redeem us merely to save us from hell, but to win for himself eternal worshipers. May I prove that to you? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5. It says, He predestined us for adoption to Himself through Jesus, uh, as sons through Jesus Christ, according, here is that term again, according to the purpose of His will. Now watch this. Why did He do this? To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In saving us to the praises of His glorious grace, He's inviting us into deep intimacy and the greatest and highest estate ever known to mortals. He gets praise and glory and we get freedom, deliverance, peace, joy, eternal life and all the accompanying benefits of being found in Him. And what a travesty it is. When those of us who were made from dust and who will return to dust align themselves only religiously with the people of God, and yet they deny the sanctifying work, the reclaiming work of the Holy Spirit, and choose to live in disobedience, and thereby deny the God, the glory, that He should receive from lives that are surrendered to His will. And lastly, we have to recognize that God's aseity, His self-existence and the zeal for His glory also means that God is independent of us. Now we may understand somewhat that he needed no one for his existence and that he lived for his glory. And yet we may believe that we're doing him some kind of a favor, that our praises add something to him. On the flip side of that coin, we may think that the rebellion of the unregenerate somehow diminishes him or threatens him in some way. But let me ask you a question. I seriously want you to answer it. What would God have been deprived of if he had never decided to create angels? The sun, the moon, the stars, oceans and zebras, ladybugs and goldfish, men and women. What would God have been deprived of if he had never chosen to say those words, let there be light? What he would have been deprived of is absolutely nothing. He was, he is, and he will be complete in himself. Psalm 50 verse 12. God says this, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. Now listen to this. And you shall glorify me. 
Paraphrasing this passage, Puritan George Swinnick wrote these words as though he's speaking in the voice of God that we see in Psalm 50. I declare to the world that I am incapable of the least want. Or if I needed a meal, I wouldn't go to the creature's door to beg of it. I could, I could supply myself out of my own store if there were need, but there is no need at all. See, God takes from one, from none and has never been owed, or I'm sorry, has never owed any the least bit. He takes from none and has never been, he's never owed anybody the least bit. His self-existence means he's self-sustaining. He's never been at anyone's mercy or in anyone's debt. When he was confronting Job in the end of that glorious book, he says this, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Now, may we wrap this up by doing just a tiny bit of comparison. This is never the case with his creatures, ever. We are dependent through every phase of life, even if we claim to be antisocial, fiercely independent, we are born dependent. We need our mother's milk and the care and provision of our fathers. We depend on others to this day for employment and for business. Where would we be without companionship, compassion, and encouragement? We live every single day symbiotically with others. And how much more so are we dependent on our Heavenly Father? We depend on Him for life. We depend on Him for breath. We depend on Him for rain and soil. We're eternally indebted to His goodness for everything, though we neglect to offer Him the thanks that His mercy to us demands. So my prayer today is, may God awaken us to our dependence upon Him. Now, as we've laid this foundation, I hope, I pray that you meditate deeply on these things. I hope that these truths will inflame you with wonder and gratitude. I pray that you offer daily worship to the praise of His glorious grace. I pray that your mind and your soul are less gripped by creaturely perceptions of our self-existent, glorious, and independent God. And to him I say, be the glory and honor, the power and praise forever. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these truths, God. God, I confess, even as I say them, and Lord, I just feel so inept to encapsulate in 30 or 40 minutes your self-existence, your zeal for your glory, your independence from your creation, God. It's too big, it's too high, it's too wonderful. How could I ever touch the, the, the farthest border of these thoughts, God? And the magnitude of them. So Lord, I'm relying on the, the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal these things, to, to deliver them more deeply into our souls and spirits. God, help us to hear, to know, to understand. God, that wonderful and glorious name by which you are to be revered forever. Yahweh, I am that I am. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
If I could have our communion workers come help us, um, we are about to receive from the Lord's table. And um, I just want to encourage you um, with this as we always uh, find such perfect um, meaning in this in this sacrament, this glorious sacrament of the church. And it's this, that if we talk about a God who is great, a God who is everything that we've described, that he is, he's self-existent, that he's zealous for his glory, and that he is independent, it is an amazing wonder that God became man in the form of Jesus and took, uh, took upon him the sins of the world and suffered for us so that we might share in his eternal glory. That is a mind-blowing thought when you consider the lofty nature of who God is and the ashes-to-ashes, dust-to-dust nature of ourselves. And so when you come to this table, you should come with a rejoicing heart that the glorious God sent his only Son to suffer for you so that you might uh, be glorified with him, which is the promise of Romans 8. So if you're here and you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, let me just caution you against coming and partaking of the table. Uh, the Bible says clearly that um, uh, this is that, that those who um, uh, you know, eat and drink unworthily, eat and drink condemnation to themselves. And that's not to shame you or restrict you. What we are hoping and praying is that in, in hearing the word of the Lord, your heart will be prompted to, to drop all your self-idolatry and come running to the cross of Jesus and become his. And so we, we encourage you, if you need to talk about that, um, we can talk to Gabriel, you can talk to Pastor David, you can talk to myself, and, um, and we would love to have that chat with you. And also just know that we're praying for you that that day comes quickly for you. But for the rest of you, come and receive these elements, take them back to your seat, and we'll share them together in just a moment. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake of the cup together. Now let's give thanks. Father, thank you so much. God, you are, you are so far above us, so amazing, God, that to think that you would lay aside your glory and come, take on human form and die for us is a thought too high for us. We cannot even imagine it. And so God, thank you for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for coming and being obedient to your father's will. And in doing so, redeeming us from the curse of sin, from the curse of the law, from the curse of death. And we thank you for that, Lord. We pray that you would work in our hearts to keep us truly grateful, truly in wonder of the great God who has orchestrated all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I want to read this uh, benediction over you. I just want to tell you, it's a little longer than I normally do, but I think you'll see the reason I chose it. This is the, the words of the Apostle Paul in Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it 
who made uh, uh, the being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed.